Our gracious Father, your Son, our Savior, your Spirit, your presence dwelling in each of us. I thank you, Father, that the church is not a building, an organization, a denomination, or anything else. But we, as your people, are your church. And not just those sitting in this room, but those who love and follow Christ all over the city, all over the world, from those who have to gather secretly to those who are in some ornate cathedral somewhere. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation is yours. And I'm so grateful for that. And I'm grateful that as we gather as a small body here in Gunnison, Lord, that the size of our church has absolutely no bearing on the size of our God and the incredible things that you can do and want to do in and through our lives. I pray as we seek you in your word this morning that we would continue to worship and we would continue to have a great desire to honor you and that we would do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we began a study on the end times. That is the proverbial can of worms. Because once you open it, you just you can't go back. Um, today I'm going to do a real quick review of what we talked about last week. And I'm doing this not uh, because I think you weren't paying attention or you didn't, you know, maybe you weren't here, I don't know. But I'm going to do a quick review of last week uh, because it's good for all of us as we talk about constantly context, context, context. So I want you uh, just to have a good reminder of why we're going to jump into <laughs> what was meant to be a brief study on the rapture. And when I got to page four of my notes, I was like, well, yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, chances are we're not going to finish Mark 13 this week, so we'll probably finish it next week. But you never know. Stranger things have happened. So let's read Mark chapter 13, and we're going to go all the way up to verse 20-ish. Does that sound right? Sorry, I'm just, I'm just looking real quick through my notes. Yeah, yeah, we're going to go to about verse 20. Then, as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here? And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves. For they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death. And a father, his child, and children rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Verse 14. And verse 14 is about actually as far as we got last week. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of the house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray, your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, verse 21 gets into not being deceived by false Christ, and we'll come back to that. So, for the sake of review, and I'm going to be very quick here. If you missed last week, I highly recommend you go listen to it. Um, But we're going to do a very quick review. So, that starts off with a question. The disciples see the temple and they go, look, look, Lord, look at these huge stones and everything. And Jesus says, it's all going to go away. And they said, well, okay, when is that going to happen? We know it happened in 70 AD, but the rest of what Jesus is talking about is not what happened in 70 AD. I'll come back to that in a moment. He starts off by saying, do not be deceived. And we live in a world where deception is rampant. Uh, even, unfortunately, from within those who call themselves Christians in the church. Uh, so don't be deceived. And how do we avoid deception? Well, we get into the Word of God. Uh, the third thing we talked about last week was don't be surprised and don't give up, right? Don't be surprised when persecution comes. It's going to show up. We didn't really talk much about verse 11. Don't worry about what you'll say beforehand. Um, I have heard pastors take that verse way out of context and say this is why a pastor should never prepare for their sermon i've heard it right you don't prepare for your sermon you just show up right don't don't get ready beforehand or premeditate on what you will speak but whatever's given you in that hour speak that for it's not you but the holy spirit now i truly hope it's the holy spirit and not me i really like to get out of his way and let and let i want him to work right i got nothing to say um but this is in context, in the midst of persecution, and we're told other places, um, like 2 Timothy 2.15, uh, to study, to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, that's a very poor interpretation. But that's not what we're talking about. He says, persecution will come, so we should not be surprised. That's what Peter told us in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial which comes upon you. And then we are encouraged to endure to the end because we should not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Now when we got to verse 14, we talked about this prophecy from Daniel. And this is why if you missed last week, it would be great to go listen to because we did a deep dive into the prophecy of Daniel 9, 24 to 27, which I personally believe is the greatest prophecy in all of scripture because it predicts to the day the day that jesus presented himself to jerusalem as messiah it predicts that based on the book of nehemiah and a whole bunch of other fun stuff it's the day we call palm sunday but we're not going to expound upon that because we did last week so this is where we really pick up this week And so we're going to take a look at the rapture of the church. And I think it's a good point to put it here uh, because we finished last week talking about the 70th week of Daniel, which is the seven-year tribulation. And knowing where we will be as the church and what will happen to us in relation to that, I think, is important. Now, something that I'm going to say right off the bat, I'm probably going to say it four more times before we're done today, um, The rapture, as fun as it is to talk about, as fun as the end times are to study, as interesting as it is, um, that will never be our focus as a church, and it should never be our focus as Christians. Why? Because our focus should be Jesus. Now, when he comes back, I'll be real honest with you, is absolutely irrelevant. How he comes back? Also, pretty irrelevant. That he is coming back? That's what's important. Um, And we will get into that a little bit. All right, we're going to get into that a lot of it. Now, the reason I said we we stopped last week 
um, around verse 14 is because we did. We really focused on the 70th week of Daniel. The abomination of desolation taking place halfway through the tribulation when the Antichrist sets himself up as God. The second three and a half years called the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24, 21 and Revelation 2, 22. When we do get back to Mark 13 one day, um, we will see the return of Jesus described for us, which we read about in Revelation 19. Now, last week, I said there is one prophetic event that we are waiting for before the world is cast into the 70th week of Daniel, also known as the tribulation. I believe that one event is the rapture. Now, why am I picking it up here? Because as we read 15 through 20, uh, back in Mark 13, if you're on the housetop, don't take anything out, just run, right? If you're in the field, don't go get your clothes. If you're pregnant, that's going to be awful. If you're nursing, that's going to be awful. Pray that it doesn't happen in winter. There's going to be such tribulation that has not been seen since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor will there ever be again, and unless the Lord had shortened those days, right? That's why he limited it to seven years. No flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened those days. But does that mean he shortened the days for us as the elect so we could get through it? No. It's because there will be elect who get saved during the tribulation. It's shortened for their sake, not ours. Want to know why? We're not going to be here. Great old Twisted Sister song. We're not going to take it. Kind of hoping I'd get a chorus out of that. No, I got a couple of people. All right, thank you. Um, but we could, we could change those words and make it a song about the rapture. We're not going to be here. No, we ain't going to be here. Um, now, there is another interpretation of this passage, both this and where it goes, appears elsewhere in the Bible, like Matthew 24. There are those who see this passage that Jesus is talking about, right? Where if you're in the field, run. If you're on the housetop, run. If you're pregnant or nursing, it's in the winter, that's going to be terrible. They try to take that and make it the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And they, they then see the abomination of desolation in Daniel chapter 7 as the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And then they do that to then make this a past event. Usually those folks have a different view on the rapture. I'm not saying they're heretics or anything of the sort. I love several people, or I love a lot of people, but I love several people who hold that view. This is why I disagree with them. Are you ready? Verse 19, in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time nor ever shall be. So let's a brief history lesson. At Jesus' time, right, and even at our time, what would be the worst tribulation you could think of before this? God flooded the world and killed everyone, except for eight people. What happened in 70 AD was not worse than that. And this is to be the worst tribulation that the world has ever, will ever see. So that's why I don't believe this is talking about 70 AD. I think this is talking about the tribulation. So where will we be during the tribulation? We'll be sitting on a cloud that serves milkshakes. Okay, probably not milkshakes. Maybe. I don't know, because when we get there, right, this lactose intolerance is gone. My, my, my poor daughters who love milkshakes, they're just going to sit there and drink milkshakes and eat pizza and... Uh, especially Lydia, she's going to just want a big block of cheese. Lord, I want an 80-pound block of cheese. She's going to sit there and eat it. I want a talent of cheese. I don't know if that's what it's going to look like, but what I do know, and I believe this wholeheartedly, is that we will not be here for the rapture. We will not be here for the tribulation. Julie gave me a nice smile. She's like, that ain't right. <laughs> we will not be here for the tribulation because of the rapture. Now, one of the things that a lot of people get all caught up in is the fact that the word rapture does not appear in the English Bible. doesn't matter what translation you have, the word rapture doesn't appear. So where do we even get the word rapture? Well, if you follow me real, real, real fairly quick... I should have just put it in my notes to make all our lives easier to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, and if you don't want to go there, that's fine. I'm going to get there eventually. It's 
before Timothy, right? No. Thessalonians, before or after Timothy? I should know this. Yeah, it's before Timothy. I'm almost there. I'll find it. Anyways, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 tells us, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That is where we get the idea of the rapture. But the rapture, the word rapture doesn't appear there, does it? It's the word caught up. And the word caught up is harpazo. And it means to seize, catch away, pluck, pull, or take. When we study the book of Revelation in full, following the outline given to us in chapter 1, verse 19, he, uh, God tells John, write down the things which are, or the things which were, the things that are, and the things that will come to pass. It's a divine outline of the book of Revelation. The things that were, chapter 1, description of Jesus, the things that are, chapter 2 and 3, the church age, as he writes a letter to seven different churches, which were seven churches that existed at the time, seven periods of church history, and um, seven types of churches that exist today. Those two chapters represent the church age. When you get to the beginning of chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, John hears a trumpet and he is taken up to heaven. It is a type of the rapture, and we're going to get a little more into that. But that's when the rapture takes place. It's right at the beginning of chapter 4, and everything that follows up to chapter 19 is the tribulation up to Jesus' return, millennial reign, the destruction of the old heaven and the old earth, the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. Was that enough in like a minute and a half? That is right. Everything I just said is a study we could take six months on. And one day maybe we will. Um, but if you can't wait, you can go to my YouTube page. I have a whole study on the book of Revelation. And Linda loves it because I have recommended people listen to that study for years. Uh, if you want to know more about the end times. The reason we have the word rapture is because of the Latin Vulgate. The vulgar Latin translation of the Bible. In the vulgar Latin translation of the Bible, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, the word caught up, they translate it rapturos. Sound familiar? It's the word rapture. So if somebody goes, well, the Bible doesn't say rapture. Okay, then I'm not looking for the rapture. I'm looking for the harpazo. I'm looking for God to catch us up. Because that is what the word means. Now, there are three views, typically, of the rapture. Keep in mind, these views have nothing to do with the millennium, right? Because then there's three views of the millennium that we're not going to get into right now. And if you want to, guess what? Go to my YouTube page. It's all there. Uh, but there are three views of the rapture, pre, mid, and post-tribulation views. We're going to look at the two I disagree with, and then we're going to dive into why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture and why, personally, I think you should do. So we have what's known as the mid-trib rapture. That view is confusing to me. It comes, I think, from a poor interpretation of 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and Revelation 11.15. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it talks about a trumpet. And in Revelation 11, halfway through the tribulation, are the trumpet judgments. Those are different trumpets. There's a trumpet that calls us home, and then there's the trumpets of judgment that are poured out on the earth. Two different trumpets. That's why I don't think a mid-trib rapture makes any sense. I don't think that's good um, exegesis of Scripture and good interpretation. Second, there is the post-trib view of the rapture. This one um, confuses me a little bit, because there are those who believe that we as the church will go through seven years of tribulation, and at the end of the rapture, Revelation 19, when he comes back, first he raptures us, gives us new outfits and horses, and we come right back. That does not make any sense to me. I, the biggest reason is because as we look at the rapture throughout Scripture and we look at Jesus' second coming, they are described differently. The rapture is described as us meeting him in the air. Right? We're being caught up to him in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. His second return, his feet touch the ground. 
You can read about that in Zechariah 14.4. His feet touch the ground. Two different events. People like to see the return of Christ and the rapture is happening at the same time. I don't see that in Scripture. Now, last week as we talked about the prophecy in Daniel 9, I presented a timeline that includes the rapture taking place before the seven-year tribulation or Daniel's 70th week. This is the timeline I believe is correct. There are others who suggest Daniel's prophecy refers to something that happened in the past, like the Maccabean revolt in the 160s, or as we talked about earlier, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. For the view of the pre-trib rapture and the seven-year tribulation to be correct, the temple will have to be rebuilt. Those of us who hold to that view believe it will probably be rebuilt either leading up to or during the tribulation. So while I am convinced that what I am about to share with you is the correct view, I would never say that those who hold to other views are wrong. I would never say... Um, that they are heretics. I would never say that they're not really Christians. I would never say anything like that. Because honestly, you can make a biblical or historical case for the other views. I think it's an incorrect interpretation. I think it's an incorrect interpretation. But guess what? I'm not God. I didn't write the book. I'm doing my best, like everybody else, to understand it. And by God's grace and his Holy Spirit, hopefully we're doing a pretty decent job of that. But I didn't write the book. There's a very real possibility that I'm wrong. <gasps> Is anybody shocked by that? Even a little bit, right? There's a very real possibility that I'm wrong. Um, and, okay, if I'm wrong, I'm not going to care. When we get there, ain't one of us going to look at anybody else and go, ha ha, my view, uh, see, we got raptured before the tribulation, I told you so. It's not going to happen. Or maybe it happens some other way, and, and we go up and we come right back on horses, and I'm sitting next to somebody who has that view. I see, look, look, what you, I told you. We're not going to do that. You want to know why? Because in that moment, we're going to be in the presence of God. We're going to fall at the feet of Jesus Christ. We're going to have the realization of everything we believed here coming to a consummation. And we're not going to care. We're not going to care about any of our theology that may have been slightly off. Or maybe we interpreted this verse incorrectly. What we're going to care about is in that moment, we are saved. We are home. Praise God. Now, I'm going to tell you why everybody else is wrong. I want you to keep very firmly in mind that this did not come from me. I didn't come up with this. It wasn't my years and years and years of, of hard, diligent study. There's other people who have come before me who did all that work, and then I stole from them. Actually, I'm going to say I learned from them so I could share with you. But this is why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And there are multiple biblical reasons I believe that the church, we who are followers of Christ, will be caught away, harpazo, or raptured before the seven-year tribulation. As we go through, I'm going to share a couple other things with you. Um, that come from some of those other views, just to give you a balanced approach to this. But this is why I believe it. Number one, the tribulation is called the great day of God's wrath in Revelation 6.16. For those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we have been delivered from God's wrath. I'm going to give you two, three scriptures, actually. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 and 1 Thessalonians 1.10. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. We who wait for the Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Romans 5, 8, and 9. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, while, and again, like I said, I have, I have good friends that have 
different thoughts on this. And some see our deliverance from wrath to only mean God's eternal judgment, which it absolutely does. As followers of Christ, we will or have already been delivered from God's eternal judgment. We will never face it. Isn't that good? That's good news, folks. That's good news. Um, I think it also applies to the wrath of God being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world during the tribulation. I think it would be uncharacteristic for God to deliver us from his wrath through Jesus Christ and then to allow us to experience his wrath during the tribulation. That doesn't make sense to me. And so that's reason number the first one. God has delivered us from his wrath. Now you may say, oh, but you know, I've, I've, God has dealt with me before. Yes, God deals with us as erring children. He corrects us. He doesn't punish us. It's different. Sometimes, well, but I, this happened and I went through this horrible things. God did that. No, it was probably you, you did that. It's probably your own poor decision making that led to those consequences. But God will not punish us. He will correct us. And that's very different. Number two, the church is not mentioned. We're talking about the book of Revelation here. From Revelation chapter 4 until Revelation 19 when Jesus returns. The church is mentioned 20 times in chapters 1 through 4 and then again in chapter 21, 22. But the church not being mentioned in the chapters of Revelation that describe the tribulation for us would indicate that the church is not on earth during that period of time. Okay? Even though the church is not mentioned in these chapters, we cannot assume that we as believers in Christ will not suffer for our faith. That is not the wrath of God. We as believers, and we talked about this last week, and we mentioned it earlier, Mark 13 and 1 Peter 4, we are told to not be surprised when we go through fiery trials for our faith. There are believers in Christ in the world right now who are in prison. They meet in secret because being a Christian is illegal. They face death or physical violence for their faith in Christ. Now, while we in the U.S. don't typically face physical violence, at this point, and um, I really hope I die before that happens, but I'm, it could. I don't like pain. Anybody else? I, I'm just not a, I'm not a pain person. Um, I really hope and pray that I would never renounce my Savior over pain. But um, I still don't like pain. It hurts. It hurts. Yeah, right there. That's why. Thank you, Linda. <laughs> um, but we are told to expect persecution. John 16, 39, Jesus said, I've spoken to you, uh, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The issue is not that we will never suffer, it's that we have victory in Jesus. There's a false teaching that floats around that says we're always going to be healthy, we're always going to be rich, we're never going to get sick, we're never going to suffer, and if we suffer, we're not Christians. If you are not suffering for your faith. I would wonder about my relationship with Christ. And I'm not saying that, you know, you got somebody out in your front yard trying to set your house on fire, or every time you go to Walmart, somebody sees you wearing a cross and they drag you out into the parking lot and beat you. That happens other places. But we as followers of Christ will suffer for our faith. And it's going to look different in each of our lives. And I'm not saying what I've gone through makes me more of a Christian than what you've gone through. That's poppycock. That is not true. But we will suffer for our faith. And just because we're not going to be here for the tribulation doesn't mean that suffering won't happen. But since the church is not mentioned in the 15 chapters of the book of Revelation that describe the tribulation to us, I do not believe the church will be here. Number three. This may be one of my favorite, just, yeah, just one of my favorites. Um, typology. Jewish prophecy is quite often given to us in what the Bible calls types and shadows. 
Uh, you can go look at Colossians 2.17, Hebrews 8.5, and 10.1. But the Bible often gives us prophecy in types and shadows. One of my favorite, um, was it Ezekiel who was told to lay naked on his side and then flip over? Was that Ezekiel? Anybody? Oh, if nobody else knows, it was Ezekiel. Um, <laughs> you can look that up later, right? Why? Why? Well, because God had a lesson he wanted to teach the Israelites. And he said, you do this, you're going to do that, and then this is the lesson. That seems odd to me. You should all be very grateful. God has never told me to do anything like that. Uh, sermons on Sunday would certainly be more interesting. Um, but... <laughs> The church would probably be empty. We'd have to blur the camera. I don't, I don't know. Um, I didn't say they'd be better. <laughs> I just said interesting. But that's one of the ways, as you read through the Old Testament, God does this a lot. And so we look at types and shadows. I'm going to give you a few, and we're going to go through them quickly. But I absolutely, you should take the time to go back and study these and see if that makes sense. Lot being delivered out of Sodom. In Genesis 19, because Abraham, when he interceded for Sodom, looked at the Lord and said, Will you punish the righteous with the wicked? And God said, No. And he delivered righteous Lot before he poured out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if that's his character in Genesis 19, and we know God is immutable, he does not change. Why would his character be different during the tribulation? If he's going to deliver Lot and his family, why wouldn't he deliver his church? What about Shackrach and Benny? I always call him Shackrach and Benny because Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego is too hard to say repeatedly. But back in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes a golden image, plays the music, says, you bow down to the image or I'm going to burn you alive. And they said, no, not going to do it. So he takes them and he gives them, guys, I'm going to give you another chance. And they said, you know what, Neb, Mr. Nezer, if, you deliver, if, if, if our God can deliver us, that's what he said. They said, our God can deliver us, but he doesn't. We're still not bowing down to your statue. Do what you want. Oh, and he got furious, heated the flames so high that it killed the guards, threw them inside. Nebuchadnezzar looks through the window. I don't know why they had windows. I don't know what he looked through. But he looks into the fiery furnace and he goes, didn't we throw three guys in? And they were like, oh, yes, king, we threw three guys in. He goes, why is there four? And the fourth one's real shiny. One walking around like the son of God. Shakrach and Benny are a type of Israel being preserved through the tribulation. Where's Daniel? That's why I love Jewish typology. Where's Daniel? He was there in chapter 1. He was there in chapter 2. He's back in chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Why isn't Daniel there in chapter 3? Do you think Daniel bowed down to the gold idol that Nebuchadnezzar set up? No. Later in Daniel's life, they said, if you pray, we're going to feed you to the lions. You know what Daniel did? He opened his windows and prayed towards Jerusalem. Fine. Throw me to the lions. So you, I don't believe for a moment Daniel ever would have bowed to that statue. But he's not there. Most likely, because of what he did in the kingdom, he was sent to another country as an ambassador. That's most likely why he wasn't there. But it's a picture. Israel being preserved through the tribulation, Shakrach and Benny, Daniel being the type of the church delivered from it. I'm not done. There's more. Noah is another one of my favorites. Noah going through the flood in Genesis 6 through 9 is another picture of Israel being preserved through the tribulation. And then we get to my absolute favorite one, and that is how our end times timeline looks like a Jewish wedding feast. Who are we, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ? We are the body of Christ, yes, and we are the bride of Christ. We are his bride. Now, listen to this. This is how the Jewish wedding feast would go. The groom pays the price for the bride's betrothal. 
Jesus paid the price for our betrothal on the cross. 2 Corinthians 11, 2, and a multitude of other places. But I'm just going to give you one scripture for each. Then what happens? Once the price is paid, the groom goes and prepares a place for his bride. Which is very cool. Because back then what they would do, right? You didn't buy your own house or get your own apartment. You built a room onto your parents' house for you and your bride. Absolutely love that. Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you so that I can receive you to myself. Number three, the groom returns for the bride unexpectedly. We see this uh, in um, uh, the parable of the virgins in Matthew 25. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24, verse 36, right? That I'm going to come at a time when you do not expect. In the Jewish wedding feast, Dad would pay attention to the house Sonny Boy was building for him and his bride, or the room. And there would come a day, right? They didn't have these huge plans ahead of time. They would have everything ready, and the bride would have everything ready because she did not know. And then, one day, Dad would get up on Tuesday morning or whatever it was, and he'd look at the room and he'd go, Son, it's ready. Go get your bride. They waited at least a year to make sure she wasn't pregnant, but that's another issue. Um, dead serious, it's true. Um, but she didn't know. Maybe dad would make them wait two or three years. Maybe they were betrothed very young, which happened in that culture, and they wouldn't get married for 15 or 20 years. Probably not quite that long, but if they were betrothed as children, they might not be married for 15 years, 10, 15, something like that. But one day, dad wakes up and says, son, go get her. What does the groom do? He goes and gets her, and he takes his bride to the wedding feast for seven days. We're told in Revelation about the wedding feast of the Lamb and that the bride has made herself ready. At the end of the seven days, the bride is presented publicly as his wife. Go read Revelation 19. Jesus presents us to the world publicly as we follow him on pretty white horses. Now, we don't have to do anything. He does all the good work, but we're there. The Jewish wedding feast is a perfect picture of end times prophecy. Now, somebody would go, oh, that's a bit of a stretch, but I gave you all the scriptures, didn't I? 2 Corinthians 11, 12, John 14, 1 through 4, Matthew 24, 36, 25, 1 through 3, Revelation 4 through 19, Daniel 9, 27 to 24, Revelation 19, and so many others. When Jesus left, when he ascended to the right hand of God, he looked at his disciples and said, I will come back. After his ascension in the book of Acts, chapter 1, angels appeared to the disciples and said, why are you standing there staring up into heaven? The way you saw him go, that's how he's going to come back. Now go do what he told you to do. That command hasn't changed. What are we waiting for, my dear brothers and sisters? We're waiting for our groom to come back and get us. And seven years after that, he will present us publicly. The purpose of the tribulation, this is number four. The purpose of the tribulation is to deal with the Jewish people. Go read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Go to our Roman study on chapters 9, 10, and 11. God has a plan for Israel. He is not done with the nation of Israel. And this is what prompted this whole thing, so blame Hamas. They had to invade Israel, and now we're talking about end times for at least another week after this. But God has a plan for Israel. That's why, even though the things happening over there are horrible, Israel will not be defeated. I, I don't have even the slightest concern. I think it's awful that they're going after civilians. I think it's awful that people are being killed on both sides. Because uh, if they don't know Christ, that's it. They're going to face judgment, which is very sad to me. But Israel will not be defeated. I have no issue with that whatsoever. That's not going to happen. Romans 11.25 says that blindness has happened in part to the Jewish people until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And the fullness of the Gentiles speaks of the completion of the Gentile church. When will the completion of the Gentile church happen? When will Jesus' bride be complete? 
I don't know. Neither does anybody else. That's why we don't predict the return of Christ. Because anybody who does is wrong. That's all there is to it. But there will come a day when God the Father will look down at the church and he goes, that was the last one. I was waiting for them. The trumpet will sound and we go home. Additionally, to talk about how the fact that the tribulation is meant to deal with the Jewish people, we go back to the prophecy in Daniel, and we're not going to really go back, but I'm just going to mention this, because those 70 weeks were determined for Daniel's people. Daniel's people were the Jewish people. 69 of those weeks have taken place. One week is left. The 70th week of Daniel, which we call the tribulation. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of real quick verses, and then we're going to be done. Do you believe me? <laughs> there was absolutely no confidence. Do you believe me? They were like, no, he's, he's lying. He's not lying. Right? So, uh, number five, I'm just going to throw out a few scriptures for you. We're not going to read them. Um, I encourage you, they should be in your notes. They're up there. I encourage you to read them on your own. 1 Thessalonians, which we already referenced, 4, 13 through 18, talks about us being caught up. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, talks about the apostasy that precedes the rapture. And then describes the rapture as the removal of that which is restraining the Antichrist. And that which is restraining the Antichrist is the Holy Spirit at work in the church. Um, but that, that is its, those 12 verses are its own study that we're not going to do. Uh, right now, anyway. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 58, says very plainly, We will not all die, but some will be changed in the moment and in the twinkling of an eye. Because when the rapture happens, that trumpet will sound, we're home. Right? It's not like the truck will show up and we all load in and it drives us up there or a chariot of fire. Okay, the chariot of fire would be cool. But the Bible doesn't say that's how that happens. That happened for Elijah, but not us, sadly. Um, right? A moment, a twinkling of an eye, we're home. And then there are a ton of scriptures, and here's just a few that talk about the importance of urgency. We're going to see that more as we finish Mark 13, that we are to live expectantly, we are to live with urgency. And then in the book of Revelation, Chapter 3, verse 11, chapter 16, verse 15, chapter 22, verse 7, chapter 22, verse 12, chapter 22, verse 20, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 8, 2 Peter 3, 1 through 8, and Matthew 24, 44 says, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. How are we ready? We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We surrender our lives to, him, lives to him. We are forgiven. We are saved. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. And if that's you and that's me, we're ready. Oh, it's gorgeous. And that's why we live it expectantly. Because I said this, I say it a lot. Um, but whether the trumpet sounds or whether we get hit by a bus or have a heart attack or a brain aneurysm or, you know, you, you're, you go to the pool and you hit your head on the bottom and drown, um, I'm not hoping this for anybody, by the way. I'm just saying nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. And so some people go, well, I'm going I'm to give my life to Christ on my deathbed. That is a bad idea. Who in the world do you think you are that you think you can command that of God? That you think God will really give you that chance? Now, he does give that chance to some people. But I wouldn't want to take a chance on that. So two things and we're done. <laughs> There's not a lot of notes, I promise. Um, number one, while studying and talking about eschatology or end times is a lot of fun, and I do enjoy it quite a bit, this is not our focus. No matter what one's view of the end times is, no matter which timeline we hold to, or which view of the rapture or the millennium or whatnot that we think is correct, the emphasis must always be on Jesus' return. He is our focus. Some churches get all bent out of shape and all they talk about is the end times. That is the wrong 
focus. Some churches get all bent out of shape and they all they want to talk about is the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That is the wrong focus. Some churches, all they want to talk about is, is the culture. Or all they want to give is um, feel-good messages and live your best life now. Right? That is not what we are to be focused on. We are to focus on Jesus Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. The last thing Jesus said to the church in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, Jesus says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That last part's added by John through the Holy Spirit. The last thing Jesus said to us, I'm coming back. Did he say, Surely the rapture will come before you know it. Surely, watch out for the rise of the Antichrist. Surely. What does he say? I'm coming back. So that's what we're looking for. And whether he comes back the way I've um, explained to you today, which is what I think will happen, or he comes back some other way, I don't care. My prayer, Maranatha, come quickly. Number two, there are certain essentials of the faith that are necessary for me to have fellowship with other believers, right? Three. Oh, that doesn't, that, that, that doesn't seem like a lot because it's not. Three essentials. Number one, there is only one God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If somebody calls themselves a Christian and does not believe that, they are not Christians. There's a movement out there called the Jesus Only Movement where they do not believe in the Father or the Holy Spirit. They believe in Jesus only. That's why it's called the Jesus Only Movement. It sounds good on the surface, but it's bad theology. Right? One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Number two, Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection purchased the free gift of salvation for us. We must repent and believe, but salvation is entirely a work of God by grace, through faith, and there is nothing we can do to earn it. The moment any church or cult or, or whatever comes to you and says, well, yes, we believe that Jesus died on the cross because they will tell you that. But if you really want to be saved then you have to wear the right underwear to temple every week. That's a Mormon thing, by the way. I'm not joking. Or, if you really believe, then you have to call God Jehovah. If you really are going to go to heaven, you have to meet on Saturdays. That's not in the Bible. Or, one of my favorites, there is a denomination which I don't... Uh, um, I say that very loosely. I don't think they're Christians. But they tell you that you can't go to heaven if you use musical instruments in worship. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my entire... Okay, it's not the dumbest thing. It's on the top ten, right? Why? Because what does the Bible tell us to do? To sing and make melody, to praise him on the harp and on the lyre. Why would the Bible command us to use instruments if it's going to keep us out of heaven? That would be an awfully cruel joke, wouldn't it? Do you also the Bible doesn't say you can't go to heaven if you dance? Great story. Elvis Presley was raised as a Baptist. Did you guys know that? Southern Baptist. And I got nothing against Southern Baptists. I know many who are wonderful folks and love Jesus with all their heart. Uh, but there are those who say that if you dance, you're going to hell. Now, their definition of dancing included moving your feet. So as long as you didn't move your feet, you weren't dancing. So as long as your feet were planted, you could do whatever you want. As long as your feet didn't move, it wasn't dancing. So that's one of the reasons Elvis danced the way he did. Because his feet never left the ground. True story. You can Google it. Right? That's a bit of an oxymoron. Well, if it's on the internet, it's got to be true. I heard Abraham Lincoln said that. Um, but there is only one way to be saved, and that's through Jesus Christ. And there is no, there's no compromising that. And finally, the Bible is the word of God. It is the authority for all faith and practice in our life. So if somebody compromises the Bible, they disagree with the Bible, they hold another source as equal to or superior to the Bible, that is a problem, and we cannot have fellowship with them as followers of Christ. But I want you to notice what's not on the list. The rapture is not on the list. I will never divide over end times. What else isn't on the list? Um, how about the way we dress in church? That's never going to be on the list. I've seen people leave churches over that. Wow, you didn't wear a suit and tie. I'm not coming to this church. Bye. 
Music. I've seen people leave churches over that. People have tried to get me fired because of the type of music I like to use when I leave worship. It hasn't happened here, but it's happened. Those are not the essentials. Right? Pews over chairs. I haven't seen that one, but I've, seen, I've heard from other pastors of churches splitting over that. I'm sorry, pews are awful. I'd rather have a church filled with beanbags than pews. And if your church has pews, that's okay. I'm probably just not going to visit and come back. That's uncomfortable. John Wesley or St. Augustine or someone else, nobody actually knows who this quote came from. In the essentials unity, when it comes to the faith in Jesus Christ, where we have essentials, we will be united with other believers. In non-essentials liberty, if your music sounds different than our music or your chairs look different than our chairs or, or the way you dress is different than the way you dress, fine. I don't care. You want to wear a robe? Wear a robe. You want to show up in shorts and a t-shirt? Fine. If we're all here to worship Christ, I don't care what you look like. But in all things charity, for those we disagree with on non-essential things, we love them. For those we disagree with on essential things, we still love them. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this they will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. I saw that posted on Facebook and people started arguing about it. Facebook is so stupid. Sorry, we're currently streaming on Facebook, but Facebook is still stupid. Right? Why would you argue over that verse? Well, what if they have a, what if we disagree? Who cares? I don't care if you talk about a person who is, they hate God and they hate the church and they hate me because I'm a Christian and they hate the Bible and they want nothing to do with it and they yell and scream expletives at me. Should I hate them back? No, because that's not what Jesus did when they did that exact thing to him. Those who murdered him, he prayed for. And we love them. We don't have to agree with them to love them. We don't have to support their sin to love them. We don't have to agree on everything biblically to love them. We may not be able to have fellowship with them if they're false teachers, but that's another issue. We still love them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your great love for us. And thank you for the demonstration you've given us to love others. I pray, Father, that you would take these things, help us to understand them but lord may all of these things have one very simple outcome that they would help us focus on jesus it's in his name we pray amen